the best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number three. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We're living at a time where big questions are being asked and old certainties are being shaken, polished up, or maybe dismantled. Uh, I'll give you some idea of what this, what this sounds like. Uh, this is a little piece, uh, a little bit, from uh, uh, the YouTube channel Unbelievable. It's from 2018, and there's a debate going on between a Christian theologian named Andy Bannister and uh, Peter Singer, the uh, philosopher, I think, at Princeton University. And during the debate, the host brings up the first paragraph of the preamble to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says, Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity uh, and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Well, Peter Singer responds in this way. First, we should look at this term dignity for a start and and say all humans are supposed to have this, whatever it means, right? So all humans includes those who are, let's let's say, anencephalics, right? Um, An anencephalic is an infant born... Uh, with only brain stem, with essentially with with no cortex, with no capacity for consciousness, and an encephalic will not smile at his or her mother, won't recognise his or her mother, um, presumably is not capable of experiencing or feeling anything at all. But that is a human being, mm. you know, same chromosomes and mm. so on. Uh, now compare that with uh, a chimpanzee or a horse, or you know, choose your favourite non-human animal mm. if you like. Why should we think that this human who can have no experiences um, has more dignity than the, the, the chimpanzee or, mm. the, or the horse or the dog who can respond in so many complex ways to their so, environment? So essentially you, you would contest the statement, quite simply, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. There, there because are some of the all, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there are exceptions. Uh, so what you have there is, again, calling into question a definition of what it means to be human and questioning even what is uh, meant by the word dignity uh, of the human person. My guest, O. Carter Sneed, has just written a book, What It Means to Be Human, in which he undertakes to come up with a public bioethics uh, that can help us uh, through some of these real great problems that we're facing in the world uh, of American uh, public moral decision-making. It is called, the under, the subtitle is The Case for the Body in Public Ethics. Carter uh, directs the De, uh, De Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. He's there, professor of law and concurrent professor of political science, also a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, and a fellow at the Hastings Center. And Carter, great to have you back here. Thanks. Good to join you again, Al. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Now, we're living uh, at a time... Uh, when the people of the United States and Western Europe are dealing with problems of major public significance, uh, dealing with procreation, pregnancy, babies, uh, illness uh, in which the waste away, um, clinical trials that people are pushing for, uh, patients who are afraid uh, of what doctors might do to them. You've got uh, the dying and the dead. And we all think that somehow... We can resolve uh, these questions, and uh, indeed, there are many brilliant men and women who argue and debate and all this, 
and those debates go on, and then politicians come along and legislators come along looking at those debates, and they try to cobble together legislation. But one of the things you point out at the, the very beginning of the book is that as important as these questions are, we are dealing with a very incomplete, uh, non-comprehensive vision of the most important term in this discussion, and that is the word human. But what does it mean to be human? Tell us a little bit about the history of this. It, it, did we always have such a disagreement on such a fundamental word? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. The book makes the argument that the question of what it means to be a human being is actually at the core of the richest understanding of any area of law and public policy, but it, is, it has special consequences for uh, public bioethics, which is the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. And, uh, you know, the history of American public bioethics begins in the late 1960s, early 1970s, with a series of scandals, uh, all of which involve the exploitation of the weakest and most vulnerable among us uh, by by the elite and powerful and strong. Um, I cover three particular examples uh, at the, the landscape, the historical landscape for how we got to where we are. And um, it's always been true. It's always been true that uh, the question of what it means to be human has been at the core of these disputes. And frankly, ignoring the, the fullness of human experience and what it means to be a human being has, has kind of been the explanation for our persistent failure to protect the weakest and most vulnerable. So mm -hmm. those three scandals involved research involving human subjects uh, that was chronicled by Dr. Henry Beecher in a New England Journal of Medicine article in 1966, um, where he described 22 experiments in which uh, very elite and eminent uh, research organizations, including the federal government, including Ivy League schools, pursued um, very, very exploitative uh, research interventions with human subjects, and in almost every single case, save perhaps two, didn't didn't even secure meaningful consent from the subjects. And the most egregious Peter, what I'm talking about, there were two particular examples uh, in which um, that were especially striking, one of which was the injection of hepatitis into intellectually disabled children mm. uh, at a, a, a state home called Willowbrook on Staten Island, and the other is injecting live cancer cells into patients, many of whom were suffering from senile dementia, at the New York Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital. And these are cases in which you know, basically very powerful entities who had the best intentions to derive, you know, important generalizable knowledge to help the common good just exploited these folks who were basically invisible, who had no capacity to speak for themselves or to defend themselves. Wow. Uh, the same was true in the second scandal involving poor African-American sharecroppers in Alabama and Tuskegee, Alabama, where yeah. the U.S. government <clears throat> conducted a 40-year study of Syphilis, without telling these poor sharecroppers what they were doing, uh, didn't ever provide them with any medicine to, to even alleviate their to give them antibiotics, even though that became standard of care in the 1940s wow. for syphilis, and, um, and systematically lied, uh, lied to these folks, deceived them, exploited them. And then the third sort of scandal is the scandal involving research in the early 1970s involving newly uh, aborted, that is, newborn babies who had just been aborted, who were imminently dying, but were in some cases kept alive longer so that these researchers could do experiments that, that briefly prolonged their lives and certainly increased their suffering. 
Um, and mm-hmm. and these three events all set a kind of cascade of public public uh, reaction that that culminated in congressional hearings and the passing of a of a federal statute, National Research Act. But the problem with that law, in some ways, is that it focused on autonomy and self determination as the principal goods to be vindicated and the principal protections for people taking the form of informed consent assumes that a person uh, is capable of of the kinds of intellectual activities that that make consent possible or someone who's uh, you know acting freely in their circumstances not being coerced by systemic racism or by uh, circumstances of incarceration which was the case with some of the research subjects in the Beecher article uh, to, to exercise their free will in a full way. So it's this flattened vision, as you said in your introduction, of what a person is, it, reducing a person to their will, to their desire, to their capacity to have experiences, to their capacity to forge their own pathway in the universe. This is what Peter Singer revealed to be a, a severe defect in, in his understanding of what it means to be human, because he wants to rule out those human beings from the circle of moral and legal concern, those who aren't capable of, of higher cognitive functioning. Right. That leaves behind a whole lot of folks. It sure does. Uh, so that they so this debate ends up, they try to resolve it by granting that um, the human is uh, an individual who somehow is a will, uh, exercises the will, uh, giving informed consent, um, this will is able to project some sort of future. The question when asked then is, what happens to human beings? What does it, what does it mean to be a human if, in fact, uh, you're comatose or you don't have the capacity to exercise informed consent? Do you lose your humanity? Well, clearly, according to Peter Singer, you do, right. uh, chair right. of ethics at Princeton University. Um, and according to, you know, we use the word anthropology in its modern sense to describe people going all over the world to report back, you know, the practices of faraway peoples. But when, when, we, when I use the word anthropology and in our conversation today, we use the word anthropology, using it in its, in its uh, original sense, in the meaning what is account of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a person. And the anthropology that, that holds that human beings are reducible solely to their will, to their individual wills, that is, people are not defined by their relationships, they're not in any way defined by their constitutive ties to family or community or what their social roles might be. They're simply understood in, as an abstracted, individuated will whose highest flourishing is to, is to invent and to pursue their own open future. That anthropology is called expressive individualism. Okay. Okay. And it is, and yeah, and, and that's the, that's the anthropology, the false anthropology that underlies the American public bioethics of abortion and end-of-life decision-making and assisted reproductive technology. Is that it a f- is a vision of the person that doesn't capture the fullness of, of who we are and, and doesn't take seriously any, as you said at the beginning, any of the entailments of the fact that we are we are bodies. And right. We're a dynamic unity of body and mind. We're not simply minds, a ghost in a machine with an instrumental body, instrumental relationships. We are, in fact, a dynamic unity of body and mind, and our embodiment has certain kinds of uh, inexorable um, realities like our vulnerability, our, our mutual dependence, and our subjection to natural limits. Is that phrase "expressive uh, individualism" uh, bec- is that a, have, has that become a common phrase in the debate? You know, it's it was an important phrase 
Um, it was originally coined by Robert Bella in 1985, uh, uh, author of the 1985 classic Habits of yep. the Heart, American social scientist who right. studied 200, who went out there and interviewed uh, a bunch of Americans and asked them who they thought they were and what they thought their flourishing was. And, and what he found was precisely this self-understanding that he dubbed expressive individualism. And then philosopher Charles Taylor at uh, McGill okay. University in Canada further deepened this, and, and expressive individualism okay. is is, I think, as a kind of an important term okay. to understand this. Hold it there, Carter. We'll be right back. The best. 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 Of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number three. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Carter Sneed, author most recently of What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. He directs the uh, G. Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame and is a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life and a fellow at the Hastings Center. We're talking about the problem in American public bioethics, uh, it becomes a notable field uh, in the late 60s, developing out of some real problems uh, detected in the late 60s. At the present time, a lot of what uh, is discussed in this uh, area of bioethics um, is done in pursuit of what we call expressive individualism, which sees the human as uh, an individual, atomized individual, who is basically rendered or designated as human because of their capacity to envision an open future and exercise a will in a given direction. It, the book asks the question, though, of what in the world does it mean to be embodied? I mean, if, 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 if we're merely the will, then what does it mean that we have bodies? And, in fact, that because we have bodies, we have to deal with others. Uh, we, we're dependent upon others. Uh, we are called to help others. We're not mere atomized individuals. You you deal with what are fundamentally religious questions here, but you don't do it using traditional religious terminology. But you're asking those kind of big questions that are normally regarded as religious questions. Tell me about that. Yeah, so it's definitely, the, so the, as you say, the book is not... Um, is not doesn't take a religious perspective. It's not. I'm Catholic, of course, and, yeah. and uh, profess the Catholic faith. And um, everything in the book that I argue is certainly consonant and coherent, consistent with the truth of the faith affirms. Obviously, right. uh, in fact, the, the Church's view of, of of who a person is 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 said sort of more concisely, more beautifully than I say it in the book, which is they were made in the image and likeness of God, mm-hmm. and therefore have the obligation to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and to and and, and there are all kinds of consequences that flow from that. I mean, Mother Teresa said it more beautifully than I could also, and she said that, uh, you know, the reason we don't have peace, or if we have no peace, is because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. Right. And, um, and, and the, the book is basically a long argument for the proposition that we belong to one another, right. precisely because we have, uh, we live our lives as embodied beings. Um, now, your listeners might wonder, why is, what, what on earth does this concept of anthropology have to do with law and public policy, right? Aren't, don't we live in a pluralistic nation where, 
people are you know disagree about these. Yeah, well, that's kind of where questions. that's kind of where I was going with the religion yeah, question. So, yeah, so here, here's the yeah no no and and, and so here, here's there's a very simple answer to that. And um, at Notre Dame Law School, we teach our students that the richest way to understand law and policy is is to uh, is to drill down into the normative structure and ask the question of what is this law for? What prince? What what good is it seeking to pursue? What harm is it? seeking to avoid, and that puts you in the position of understanding whether or not the mechanisms of the law are well designed to advance those goals, or if those goals in the first instance are good uh, or bad. And we do this as a, you know, as, 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 a, as a democratic republic in the United States. We deliberate about these things. We, but every law is irreducibly normative. Every law aims to do something good or avo- avoid something bad, and therefore it has bound up within it principles of justice, concepts of equality, concepts of freedom that operate even though maybe we don't say out loud what they are. And in the book, I argue that take it a step further. Say, because law itself exists for the sake of the protection and flourishing of persons, and everybody agrees with that, that's not a controversial statement, that my insight is that means that the law has to have an underlying assumption about what a person is. Right. Because if it doesn't, if we don't know what a person is or what a, what a person's thriving consists in, mm-hmm. then all of our laws are going to be arbitrary and capricious at best, because if they're meant to serve persons and to protect persons, then what, is, what do we mean? How do we? And it's not just about, by the way, drawing the boundaries of the moral and legal community to say when does life begin. Of course, that's an important question. Mm-hmm. But even the question of who who you and I are, right? Who are we? People who are sort of you know, con- we get a lot of consensus for the proposition that you and I are persons across the ideological spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question still is, what, who and what are we? What constitutes our flourishing, and what do we owe to each other? And, and for the law to actually to do its job, to protect us and to promote our flourishing, it has to have some kind of operating assumption about who and what we are. And, and what I aim to do in the book, and what I try to do, is to surface the unstated account of who a person is to show that the reason the law doesn't fully protect human beings, every member of the human family, in the context of abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making, is because because the first principle, the first question of what a person is, the law gets it wrong. And it, and it gets it wrong by defining persons in such a reduced and flattened way that it misses whole aspects of our individual and shared lives together. And that's not to say that we're not free and that we're not uh, individuated and that we don't, and there's not value in, in pursuing an open future. Of course, all those things are true. The issue is that's not the only truth. Those are, that's not even close to, the, to, to capturing the whole truth about who you and I are and what we owe to each other. Where, where can this, um, I guess the, the question I would have then is, where can this question, this is, a, again, a big macro question, what does it mean to be human, where does this get debated? In other words, how, do, how does a, 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 a pluralistic uh, democratic republic resolve a question like that? How does it happen? I mean, culture yeah. plays a part in it. Politics plays a part in it. Legislate, but uh, faith. Where, what, what do we have set up to answer right. questions like that? No, it's a great. I mean, so, so the first point I would make is there's no, there's no avoiding it, right? Either we debate it, or we operate on the unspoken assumptions, which may or may be right or may be wrong. And in these areas that I talk about, are simply false, right? They're simply they don't understand what it means to be a human being, and they don't. And, 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 and they don't, and therefore they can't even come close to explaining what human flourishing is. Because we are embodied beings, uh, we have obligations to one another because we are mutually dependent, we're mutually vulnerable, and what we need for our survival are what McIntyre talks about, 
networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving made up of people Mm -hmm. who are willing to make the good of someone else their own good without asking for anything in return. And the most pristine and obvious example of that is the family, right? A child doesn't have to earn the right to be cared for by his or her parents, right. and parents don't have, aren't obliged to take care of their children only because they signed a contract at some point in the past, right? It's by virtue of that relationship that there are obligations and privileges that flow in different directions. But So the question is, you ask, where does this get debated? Well, I'll tell you, it, it, it got debated implicitly in, in by the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade when Harry Blackman described the relationship of mother and unborn child essentially as the, as an antagonistic relationship of strangers fighting right. over scarce resources, yep. right? Yep. Like fighting over the body of the mother. And um, and that's, if anybody who has either been pregnant or has been the beneficiary of a pregnancy, that includes everyone who's walking on Earth today, um, uh, everybody knows that that is a completely foreign and bizarre account of what human pregnancy is. Right. What we're talking about in pregnancy is a relationship of a mother and a child an unborn child, to be sure, a child who's not mature and who can't formulate future-directed plans, but we're talking about a crisis involving a mother and a child, not two atomized strangers fighting over scarce resources. And Blackman does that. He does it in, 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 my, in my chapter on abortion. I sort of explain and show how he relies implicitly on the philosophy of abortion rights to describe pregnancy and then to describe this, the only solution that's fitting for a situation involving an antagonistic struggle between two individuals, and that's violence, right? The, the one has to use violence to repel the incursion of the parasite. Yeah, sure. Basically, is sure. how Blackman talks about yeah, it. Yeah. So in that case, the justices talk about it, but more commonly, but they did that by twisting the Constitution's meaning and its text and tradition. Optimally, what we would do is we'd have a conversation in our deliberative bodies, you know, in Congress or our state legislatures or in administrative agencies, and we'd say, and we would we would frame these questions within categories that are recognizable: parent, child, uh, you know, uh, loved one, neighbor, community, friends. Like this is how you talk about these relationships. You don't simply abstract. So, for example, when a person is seeking to end his or her life by assisted suicide, you don't you don't project onto that person the, this sort of false image of the unencumbered will seeking to define its way in the universe, which is precisely how the laws in Oregon and other states assume a person is, right? They they construct protections and safeguards for that idealized false image of a person. What we're talking about is a much more complicated situation. A person who is suffering from a physical ailment in a corruptible body, who is, who is not, not operating at the height of their autonomy, but they're sick, they're vulnerable. They're probably suffering from treatable depression as over 70% of people with suicidal ideation have. Mm-hmm. They are not at, at an atomized will. They live in a family. They live in a community. And if they kill themselves, there are consequences for those folks as well. And, in a, they, and they also live in a, in a community where there are vulnerable people, the elderly and the disabled, and those suffering from dementia, those from discrete insular disfavored minorities who are going to be put at risk in ways they never have been before if we change the law to allow that person in the bed to commit suicide, right? So it's about framing. I think it's about framing, and we don't have to get into the metaphysics of, you know, the mind-body problem in the state legislature. But, but But we do have to talk about these categories that we all deal with all the time, parents and family versus atomized strangers fighting over scarce resources. It is funny, isn't it? I mean, that this is um, a lot of these discussions take place without a recognition of uh, our dependence on one another 
how we are vulnerable um, to uh, being abused and the need, as, as you point out, I think you were thinking here of Al- Alistair McIntyre, uh, we need robust and expansive networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving populated by people who make the good of others their own good without demand or expectation of recompense. Um, so the question one would raise, though, is, well, those kind of communities are ideal. Those are ideal. But where do we see them? Do we even see them in the church? Yeah, no, that's a really important question. And in the book, I don't get into sort of granular proposals about how to construct, uh, you know, laws and policies right. to right. to shore these up. And But I, I stay at the high level of purpose and saying that you, know, you can measure how good or bad a law is by the extent to which it supports and sustains these networks of giving and receiving. Right. And right. sometimes, sometimes the law serves these networks by getting out of the way and allowing, you know, civil society to, to create these special little communities of love that, that support one another. Uh, but sometimes they're not forthcoming, and sometimes they're not there. And in those circumstances, the law has to intervene directly to at least, at the very least, protect the people who are endangered by the absence of these networks, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are examples, though. You can think of the Little Sisters of the Poor, for example, as a beautiful example of a network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving right. and, and serving the elderly poor. Um, and the government would be good to get out of the way and let them do their work. But That's other right. We don't have them. The government may very well need to intervene to, to, at the very least, as I said, protect those who are in danger. Yeah. Carter, great job. Uh, I'd love to talk again soon on this. I think this is going to, I hope this has the impact uh, that I hope. It's a tremendous piece of work. Thank you. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number three. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Well, I noticed uh, over the... We were talking about what it means to be human, and I thought, come up with something that's a little bit... I I think it's humorous, which is the recent efforts on the part of uh, PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, to uh, urge those interested in social justice to also fight what they call speciesism. Now, this is not an entirely new word. It's been, it's been around for a while. It hasn't really been adopted by too many people. Um, we're still dealing with ageism, right? And we're dealing with all other kinds of isms against particular humans to, then to stop the worry about species who we might be, quote, discriminating against. But speciesism, simply put, according to the pep, People for the Ethical Treatment of of animals. Speciesism is a bias in favor of the human race over other animal races. Now, this, this in, on its face ought to make us stand up and say, wait a minute, what's wrong with that? I mean, what's wrong with a bias, an inevitable bias, in favor of the human race over other animal races? The fact that I have a bias in favor of the human doesn't mean I'm going to treat non-humans badly, right? It means I obviously have a bias because I happen to think that human beings do have uh, a certain uh, priority or primacy in the world that, you know, cougars don't or, you know, mollusks don't. I mean, it's ageism, racism, misogyny, homophobia, ableism. Those are all things that we talk about in relationship to human beings, right? 
But speciesism really kind of crosses the boundary and all of a sudden includes um, non-human creatures uh, as supposedly uh, on the same level of regard that we extend towards human beings. Now, this is this is a movement that's been I don't think I don't know if it's been gaining in popularity. It certainly is. You never know with the Internet. A lot of things you become aware of that you didn't know before. You don't know if they're necessarily things are becoming more popular. But uh, there certainly has been over the last 15, 20 years, a movement to try to secure rights, legal rights, uh, legal rights for non-human creatures. Uh, Peter Singer, who we mentioned earlier, uh, has sought, you know, rights for uh, higher level creatures like chimps, which always makes me wonder too: why are they higher? I mean, if if they're higher, if you have a higher and a lower when you're evaluating the animal world, don't humans come out on top anyways? I mean, so, but. This this whole movement towards the fight speciesism, uh, it's now reached, it has reached laughable proportions. I'm all for uh, rethinking how we treat other aspects of God's creation. So I don't think on the face of it, making sure that we treat the uh, non-human world with the respect and dignity that God would want, I don't think that's stupid or silly. I think we should. Uh, maybe we don't think often enough about what we owe the non-human created world. But having said that, they'd like us to rearrange our language so that um, we stop using words like pig, snake, and dog as insults. So they think this is this diminishes the worth and dignity of pigs, snakes, and dogs. Uh, so if you don't use the word chicken to mean coward any longer because that belittles chickens. And and certainly don't use the word rat him out uh, to describe you know, what a snitch does because that's not, not nice to rats. And snakes, uh, they claim calling somebody a snake means you're calling him a jerk, and that's not good for snakes. But I would say no. When I call somebody a snake, I don't mean that he's a jerk. I mean that he's a sleazeball. Um, so, which isn't good for snakes either, I suppose. But um, call somebody a pig, it means they're repulsive, so don't call anybody a pig. I generally don't call people pigs, so I, I kind of get off on that one. I do use chicken. I use rat. I use snake. And apparently you can't use the word uh, sloth to indicate a lazy person anymore because that insults, in, that insults a sloth. You can see where this goes. Um, it's, again, another way of sanitizing our language based on, um, I don't know, very artificial uh, artificial contrivances on the part of an activist group. Years ago, I'll tell you what happened years ago. I, I had um, a person uh, from PETA on. His name was Bruce Frederick. This was back 1997, probably, 98, 97. He, Peter at that time had a big movement. They're taking big ads in newspapers and billboards and telling people that Jesus was a vegetarian. On the face of it, right, this, this ought to strike, if you're a reader of the New Testament, 
or have any idea of salvation history, you've you got to shake your head and say, well, wait a minute, why would you think Jesus is a vegetarian? By the way, let me, let me, let me just say that there are people I know who are veg- – in fact, I was a vegetarian for five years, back when I was 19 up until about 24. Um, that was before I was a Christian, and I, long, long story why that was the case. I don't regret it. Uh, it, was, it was interesting to be able to live within that kind of framework, and it makes you a lot more conscious of what you do uh, can ingest. Um, but I, I always thought, well, okay, okay, you want to be a vegetarian because you don't want to visit unnecessary violence on animals. And, of course, in the kingdom of God, I don't know. Are we going to be eating beef in the kingdom of God? Are we going to be slaughtering animals to eat? My whole point is, look, if you want to be a vegetarian because you think that bears better witness to the kingdom of God because it creates a more peaceable uh, person, a community, fine. I don't, I'm not arguing against that at all. If you want to do that, that's perfectly fine. But to claim that Jesus was a vegetarian really flies in the face of such so many biblical, direct biblical passages, but also all kinds of uh, biblical emphases uh, and allusions. So, for instance, um, when God explains to Moses uh, and Aaron that, here, I'm giving you your dietary laws, and um, you're not supposed to eat the animal parts uh, of the hoof that cloven-footed or a beast that chews the cud, okay? Um, so you can't eat rabbits. Well, you don't, you don't forbid them from eating rabbits if, in fact, they're not a meat-eating people to begin with, right? They're distinguishing between meats, animals that you can eat, and animals that you can't eat. That's, the, that's what lies behind the whole dietary laws of God's covenant people uh, in the Old Testament. I mean, even when, when Jesus um, sends his people out, to spread the gospel. Let's not jump to the New Testament. I'll be jumping around a little bit. But when he sends people out to spread the gospel, he says, you know, when you enter town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. No distinction there that you should somehow avoid uh, meat, animals. Uh, you also have, of course, Jesus in Luke chapter 5 directing the apostles to go out and lower their nets. And what, they, what, are, they, what are they getting? They're not lowering their nets and getting, you know, a good crop of broccoli. Uh, they're getting fish, presumably because they're going to sell fish and they're going to eat fish. Uh, we also have in, in uh, Mark chapter 7, and Mark actually gives us an interesting parenthetical, parenthetical statement here in Mark seven nineteen. He talks about the appropriateness of foods that could be eaten, and uh, Jesus says food that doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach, and then out of the body. In other words, Jesus is talking about what defiles a man. What defiles a man is not what goes into the stomach. I mean, this would have been a perfect place to say, listen, by the way, what defiles a man uh, are animals. You know, So stay away from that. This is a perfect area to jump in, because he's dealing with dietary restrictions, the Jewish dietary laws. Um, well, how about this? I mean, look— as we go to the, um, the Jesus' celebration of the Passover the, uh, during Passion Week, Luke chapter 22, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover lamb is to be killed, right? Jesus says to Peter and John, go prepare this Passover lamb for us to eat. Okay, uh, you're going to have 
lamb that night. Uh, once the feast prepared, Jesus and the apostles are you know having their last supper, and Jesus also says, "I've had a deep desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer." Not saying he wanted he had a deep desire because he wanted to eat lamb. That's not what I'm saying. But he had a deep desire to celebrate the Passover feast, the Passover festival, and the this eating of the lamb, the slaying of the lamb, and the eating of the lamb is a major part of the Passover festival. Uh, little facts, too. After the flood, it is interesting that it's only after the flood, apparently, that um, we're given a carnivorous diet. I'm sure there's some deeply theological reasons for that, and I know that people have speculated on it. But uh, it's worth noting that God gave Noah a carnivorous diet uh, after the flood. Now, whatever reasons those would be, it is still that God gave a carnivorous diet. So one can't say that there's anything intrinsically immoral about eating animals since God gave Noah a carnivorous diet. You might say, well, he gave a carnivorous diet because of this condition or that condition subsequent to the flood. But the point is he did it. You know, he, he it was intrinsically evil to eat animals. Then he God wouldn't have given it to him. Um it's, it's throughout, so you get this whole, and I mean, just also think about this. Peter must have a whole, I don't know if they ever get on this uh, trip, but what about the whole practice of animal sacrifice, which is foundational to the Mosaic Covenant? It, it's, it's part of what it meant to be a faithful Hebrew, uh, it was part of what the Old Testament covenant was all about in its priesthood. Uh, if, in so, if somehow the ingesting of uh, animals and animal products is intrinsically immoral, then you've got the entire priesthood under the Old Covenant engaging in acts of animal sacrifice and then eating portions of the animal. And, of course, those who were all bringing the animals to the priest to sacrifice, they're eating the animals as well. That's the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Uh, It presumes that it's legitimate to eat uh, uh, animal. So what can I say? Some people, St. Paul deals with this question of meat being sacrificed to idols. He doesn't go off into any discussion about vegetarianism there, would have been a perfect place uh, to in- introduce that there's a higher way, right? He could have said, you know, it's a higher way. Uh, if you want to eat meat sacrificed to idols, fine. If you don't want to eat meat sacrificed to idols, fine. But I give you a more excellent way. Stick with carrots and lettuce. You know, but he doesn't do that. Time and again, you have human beings seeking to be more ethical than God. And the people for the ethical treatment of animals... Well, you know, I hope in some way they serve a purpose of making us a little more sensitized to unnecessary suffering among animals. The point is, any good they might accomplish in that regard ends up losing credibility when they make claims like they make in this idea of forbidding us to use the word dog, snake, pig. It's an insult to use that language as an insult to people. You're insulting snakes and dogs and pigs.